Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, we need to talk again about the bilingual road signs. Frankly, I'm resigned to them happening. They're going to happen because despite whatever feedback from this so-called consultation comes in, the bureaucrats at the Transport Agency and the Maori Language Commission will ensure they go ahead and no politician will ever step in to stop them. So the consultation, frankly, is a waste of time. But if road safety is the major reason for these signs, and surely it must be, then isn't it important that the top line of these signs be in a language which is quickly and easily understood by the majority of the population? Because when you you look at a sign, any sign, traffic sign or not, the first thing you read is the top line. That's the way we are. That's the way we read. Top to bottom, left to right. Therefore, isn't it a matter of safety and ease of reading for road users that the top line of these bilingual signs is in English? Otherwise, you could be left with the impression that this campaign to make, what is it, 94 road signs bilingual is more a virtue signalling and Maori language education exercise than a road safety one, which, of course, is exactly what it is. But here's what I think the next National Party-led government must do, and God knows when that might be after the shambolic last few days they've had. But what the next National-led government must do is introduce legislation to make English an official language of New Zealand. I mean, it's nothing more than entrenching something that is already in place, of course, but let's put it on the same level as te reo and sign language. That's the least that my native tongue, probably your native tongue, deserves, isn't it? Now, this should be quite a big deal, but it won't be because the New Zealand media is so in love with climate change it believes everything the Climate Change Commission and the Minister James Shaw tells them. But there was quite a staggering report out yesterday about methane, biologic methane. That's the gas that sheep and cows burp and fart, and it contributes, we are told, just under half of the country's greenhouse gas emissions. Therefore, says the Climate Change Commission and James Shaw, we must reduce the number of animals on our farms so that we produce much less methane on our way to this mythical and nonsensical net carbon zero in less than 30 years. Now the official line about animal methane is that although it is a short-lived gas, its GWP, its global warming potential, is 28 times more potent than CO2. Wow, that seems serious, doesn't it? Now, that number has been around for about 30 years. So we must cull the animals to reduce this horrible gas getting into our precious atmosphere. Except that the figure of 28 times more potent than CO2 is wrong, very wrong. Because the sixth and latest assessment report from the IPCC, you know, the infallible intergovernmental panel on climate change, says the GWP of methane is not 28 times more potent than CO2, but in fact between 7 and 10 times. This AR6, this uh, sixth assessment report, says, and I quote, expressing methane emissions as CO2 equivalent of 28 overstates the effect on global surface temperatures by a factor 
of 3 to 4. So you divide 28 by 3 to 4, you come up between 7 and 10. So the number used for all our commitments under Kyoto and Paris and the Zero Carbon Bill and the work done by the Climate Change Commission are based on a wrong number. Now, shouldn't there be a bit of fessing up here, a bit of policy rewriting and admission that sheep and beef and dairy farming are not as dangerous as we've been told for years? You would think so, wouldn't you? But the silence is deafening. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now here is a very obvious statement. Airlines need to know how heavy their planes are, their loaded planes are, before they take off. I mean, isn't that the most logical statement you've ever heard? A plane's ability to take off is based on how fast it can get on the runway and how much of a load it's carrying. That's why long-haul electric battery-powered planes are highly, highly unlikely ever. The weight of the battery needed for a long-distance flight would prohibit the plane ever taking off. Airlines have also noted that the world's population is getting fatter, especially in the home of fast food obesity, the United States. Therefore, planes need to know how much weight they're carrying to ensure they have enough power to get airborne and then to fly long distances. The passengers' bags are weighed, so why not their bodies? So that's why I can't figure out the pushback from some passengers, presumably the fat ones, to the five-yearly Air New Zealand weigh-in, which is underway at the moment. The airline just needs to find the average weight of its passengers over a period of time so that they can make the necessary calculations about fuel and power for their flights. I reckon airlines actually should go a step further. I think you should get an extra baggage allowance if you're a lightweight and have it cut back if you weigh, say, 140 kilograms. I mean, what is fair about a 60-kilogram woman being made to empty her bag at check-in because it weighs 22 kilograms, 2 kg over the limit, while a 100-kilogram man can have his bag weighing 20 kilograms and his gets put through? The woman has brought 82 kgs to to the flight in total, and the man 120, yet the woman is punished for what? Airlines frankly should be weighing their passengers more often than every five years, and everyone, everyone should be obliged to weigh in. It could be a simple slogan, couldn't it? No way, no fly. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Because of my age and not being in the full-time workforce anymore, I'm not the most appropriate person to comment on this list of the country's most attractive employers, which came out yesterday. I don't actually see the point of these lists, except to say they give you a subject to have a gossip about, which is what I'm going to do now. Now, whether or not it helps in the company recruitment, I don't know. The other thing is that the jobs at many of these employers vary so much, it's hard to believe that a company like Air New Zealand, which was number one on the list, with what must be, what, about 10,000 employees, how can they be, be regarded as the country's most attractive place to work by all of those employees? Of course, they can't. However, what I'm staggered by is that there are three out-and-out government departments, not SOEs or Crown-owned entities, but three government departments in the top four. Why would working at customs 
the Ministry of Business Innovation and Employment and the Department of Conservation be attractive career options. I mean, they're not exactly entrepreneurial in spirit, are they? In fact, they're deep in the heart of the progress-stifling Wellington bureaucracy. Maybe it's the ability to work from home, the good pay, the generous holidays, and the government job security, which provides the attractiveness uh, to them as places to work. All up, there are nine government or crown-owned organisations in the top 20 most attractive places to work in New Zealand. Sadly, that points to us uh, not being a very ambitious country. Uh, By the way, after 50 years working full-time, being a part-timer now, working for yourself, is highly recommended. In fact, for me, without doubt, I have to say I am the country's most attractive employer. Now, I will put my stake in the ground straight away. I live near where the Terrace Airport is planned. I don't want it to happen. I don't want all the associated activity like the increased traffic, the noise, and, well, frankly, the complete change in the character of the neighbourhood that an airport would bring. Speaking to business people who know a bit about airports after sitting on the boards of some big ones, they just can't see a business case for Terrace International either. But Christchurch Airport, which is driving this project at Terrace in central Otago, look as if they are serious. They've just bought another 40 hectares of land. The guy who sold it to them was approached three years ago in the original uh, sale process, uh, but he wouldn't sell back then. One imagines he's held out for a whole lot more money. I presume this piece of land is the the narrow slither that was missing from the original purchase. So this means Christchurch Airport now has just under 800 hectares of farmland at Terrace and has paid the thick end of $50 million, possibly a bit more, for it. Frankly, I think Christchurch Airport shareholders, that is the Christchurch City Council, therefore the Christchurch City ratepayers, and the government, therefore that means us, the taxpayers, should be making much more comment about this. It is, after all, their money, our money, being spent. We're told that Christchurch Airport will make a big announcement within a few weeks about where it's planned to put the runway at Terrace. So that might or might not happen. Then, of course, there will be planning, consents, hearings, and without doubt, the environment caught in the process. Frankly, at the speed we build big projects in this country, I can't see this airport happening any time in the next 10 or maybe even 15 years. But I reckon the news of that latest land sale yesterday is not a good sign. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, I used to be on the board of the Taxpayers' Union. I still support their initiatives. About this time last year, they started a nationwide roadshow protesting Three Waters. There is still some way to go on that issue, but the TU certainly led the way in raising awareness. Now they're underway again. This time the issue is the replacement legislation for the RMA, the Resource Management Act. The roadshow is called Hands Off Our Homes, and it started in Christchurch a couple of days ago. Uh, Today it comes down 
my way. There was a meeting in Wanaka outside the council offices at midday. And then tonight it's in Alexandra at the community centre starting at six o'clock. The proposed replacements for the RMA are quite frightening in their reach and in the way they take power for local planning decisions away from local councils. And that's before we come across the issue of Te Oranga o Te Taio, which is like Te Mana o Te Wai on the land. Uh, the power of this natural and built environments bill, as it's called, uh, the power that this bill puts in the hands of iwi and hapu is frankly quite frightening. Even worse, the original bill had the ability for the environment court's decisions to be challenged by this body called the National Maori Authority, which is proposed to be set up under the bill. The Chief Justice had to submit to the select committee about that, and now the Minister, David Parker, says he will change that part of of the bill. Thank goodness for that. But that's just one of the many backdowns and changes that David Parker needs to make. It is very much worth your while to go to one of these meetings around the country in the next three weeks or so to find out how this planned legislation is going to reduce local control over local decisions affecting communities. Uh, the Taxpayers Union website, which is taxpayers.org.nz, has details of where these roadshow stops are. If you're in central Otago tonight, uh, the Alexandra Community Centre at six o'clock tonight is the place to be to find out about Hands Off Our Homes. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. All right, to some feedback which has come into inbox at realitycheck.radio. My text number, by the way, 2057. Uh, this note has come from Rod Clarwell at Gulf Harbour. And Rod writes, uh, I've attached a 45-page document that is the result of three months of careful research by a good friend of mine who resides in Hawke's Bay. He's given me permission to send this to you. It summarises the timeline that Māori have used to create the current government's response to the RMA and the background to the creation of the RMA. RMA replacement process. We are dealing here with a very sophisticated, multi-layered ambush, writes Rod. Co-governance is only a bait set to keep you off track. 50-50 co-governance is numerically impossible to achieve because they have said the Maori half will be selected by Maori through a process decided upon by Maori, so 50% is automatically not only Maori, but most likely radicalised Maori. Now for the other 50%, uh, no one will be able to prevent Maori, radicalised or not, from applying to be chosen or elected onto the committee, board or whatever body. So 50% Maori plus 50% not non-Māori is impossible. Then the pincer movement. In my opinion, the screeching about co-governments will reach a peak and Labour will jettison it as a voter appeasement as the election closes in. Because, writes Rod, they don't need it. Te mana o te wai clearly trumps co-governance and only a handful of people in New Zealand are aware of that. Te mana o te wai puts Māori in absolute control of all water. Well, it's not te mana o te wai, Rod. It's the ability to make te mana o te wai statements and the fact that the water services entity 
uh, must obey, must uh, put into effect what those statements say. Yes, that is control of all water. And as you say, if Māori and or iwi or hapu are able to have te mana o te wai statements accepted as part of being uh, part of the treaty, then they will control everything. That is the superb ambush. Thank you for that, uh, Rod. Yes, I'm well aware of uh, what you write, and the Taxpayers' Union is on the road, as I've mentioned already this afternoon, with their uh, with their roadshow, their Hands Off Our Houses roadshow, and no doubt Three Waters will come up as part of those roadshow meetings. So if you want to be kept up to date with what is happening on this front, check out the Taxpayers' Union website and find a date for a meeting in your area sometime in the next three weeks. Now, this country has never seemed to work out whether vaping is a good idea or a bad one. Well, when I say the country, I mean the health authorities. Various ministers of health seem to have taken a very laissez-faire attitude towards vaping, saying it's better than smoking tobacco, which it might be, but it's sort of like saying that a 50-knot wind is more pleasant than a 100-knot wind, when the reality is neither is much fun. Uh, Now we hear anecdotal evidence that there are thousands of schoolchildren addicted to vaping. They have to vape in the middle of the night, we're told. They have to vape in the shower. Good grief. Schools are rife with kids vaping in the toilets every break. It sounds like we have quite a problem. A poll on the TV news a couple of nights ago showed 68% of us want to ban recreational vaping. Uh, I would like to know, by the way, what non-recreational vaping is. However, that's another question. Uh, Anyway, the sentiment is clear. Most people want vaping stopped, particularly amongst our kids. So there are two ways to do that. One, put up the price through tax the way tobacco has been priced out of the market. And two, and this is probably the longer-term policy, make vaping socially uncool the way that tobacco is now socially uncool, very uncool. The health minister says nothing is off the table. Well, that's good to know. Australia has toughened the vaping regime so much that you need a prescription to do it there legally now. The health minister said originally she didn't want to do that in this country. Maybe this poll will make her change her mind, but something most certainly has got to be done. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. This is RCR Reality Check Radio. There have been some staggering figures revealed about the Waiperera Trust in another great piece of reporting by Thomas Cranmer, uh, the lawyer and blogger who writes under a pseudonym. Nobody seems to know exactly who he is. The Waiperera Trust, where John Tamahiri is the main man, is a significant agency for Whanau Aura programs in West Auckland. It gets a lot of money from the government to do that work, work which is uh, supposedly making a difference to Maori communities in the area. This is how much money they get. In the last reported financial year, up till the end of June 2022, Waiperera Trust had revenue of just under $70 million, with over $50 million in the bank. As recently as 2016, the Trust's income was just under $22 million. So revenue has tripled in six years. Salaries have doubled. 
Senior management remuneration has increased from $2 million to $4 million in just six years. 15 staff, that's all that worked there, 15 staff split $4,390,413 between them last year. That's an average salary of $293,000 each. Not bad for a charity. The amount of money going into this trust is quite staggering. But is it improving Maori health outcomes in West Auckland? Well, not that we hear about. Gee, this is just another example of lots of money being thrown at a problem in the hope that money fixes everything. It doesn't, of course. But when you look at this amount of money, you see John Tamahiri and probably the Maori Party doing very well from it. But there's not much evidence their work in affected communities in West Auckland is having any impact at all. Now, because of the age that I am, and that is much closer to 70 than to 60, the issue of government superannuation comes up in conversation with my friends every now and then. For me and for a lot of my friends, the super is, well, it's nice to have, but I guess we could probably survive without it. For what it's worth, I get $827.28 put in my bank account every second Monday just because I've reached a certain age. And then the Minister of Finance thinks I need some more money to heat my house in the winter, which is kind of nice, but it's not really necessary. I'm rapidly coming to the conclusion there has to be a better way of distributing old age pensions. I think that there should be much more targeted spending so that those who don't really need the money don't get as much as those who have no other form of income in their retirement years. New Zealand superannuation cost the government $17.76 billion last year. Welfare and super together cost nearly $57 billion last year, more than health and education combined. And it shouldn't be like that. National and Labour keep changing their minds, of course, on the age of eligibility. I think it should stay at 65, but there should be a better system of eligibility for it depending on age and circumstances. Your income and your assets should be assessed, and if it's not necessary for you to get the super at 65, you could maybe opt out till a later age with some reward then for holding off. What is certain is that the winter heating payment should not be universal. That arrangement is just, well, it's just retail politics, isn't it? But I tell you what, it's not wooing this pensioner over to Labour. The ludicrous size of the annual superannuation commitment means something must be done to reduce it in this country. The politician who does it will initially get hammered in the court of public opinion and probably at the polls as well and at the uh, the voting box. But it is, and it would be, for the good of the country. Who has the courage to do it? Now, I didn't watch the Warriors game in Napier last weekend because I was otherwise busy on a Saturday night, but apart from the result not going the way that Warriors fans wanted, the big issue at the match were the crowd invasion, some idiots running onto the field while the match was on. Now, this is actually a serious issue. The actual carry-ons in Napier were pretty harmless fun this time, albeit stupid and annoying for those who went there to watch the game. But they could be dangerous because imagine if someone had sinister motives for trying to get close to a player on the field with a knife, or even worse. 
That's why the only way to shut down this issue quickly is to smack huge fines, huge fines on the perpetrators. When I say huge, I mean, well, a $5,000 instant fine and automatic trespass from every sports stadium in New Zealand for the rest of their lives. Now, is that a draconian punishment? Probably. But I tell you what, it would stop idiots running onto the ground. It's the way such behaviour has been eliminated in other countries. Surely it's not too hard to have this kind of regime in New Zealand. Would the civil liberties supporters complain? Probably, but too bad. Would such a punishment be ruled disproportionate? Maybe, but we're just trying to get a simple solution to a growing problem here. So why not just get it done? Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. This has been the Peter Williams Afternoon Show for Wednesday. Thank you for your company. I look forward to talking with you again on Friday afternoon when my special guest will be former National Party Cabinet Minister Barry Brill, these days Chairman of the Climate Science Coalition. We are going to be talking methane and the discovery, uh, official by the way, official from the IPCC as we mentioned earlier this afternoon, uh, that methane is not as dangerous for the world's climate as has been reported for the last 30 years. What's going to be the impact of that on New Zealand farming? That's with Barry Brill on Friday afternoon here on RCR. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR Reality Check Radio.